Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man whose only dream is to sleep between two clean sheets. Just two pure white sheets. That's all I ask for in life. Like, just once. Do you think, like, it's not a bad dream. No. But, like, would he be severely disappointed if only one of them was clean? So this week we're talking about Port of Shadows, 1938 uh, French film directed by Marcel Carnier. Uh, I believe this is only our second Carnier film uh, after... Uh, well, I didn't pay attention to the director. I was only focused on Gabin, basically. Because we've seen him... <laughs> this like, is, this is our fifth or sixth time seeing Jean Gabin, the star. Uh, but I believe this is... Uh, uh, that Carnier's only other film we've seen so far was uh, Children of Paradise. Which I don't recall at all. That was the big French uh, Gone with the Wind historical Oh, film. okay. Oh. Wait, what? That was like four hours long. Yeah, the... the well, it was referred to as the French Gone with the Wind, but it was about uh, theater and a woman who... Uh, was in love with like three different people or three different people. Oh, I kind of remember. It was very. That. It was a lot the like only, the the only, uh, the only non-American Gone with the Wind that I actually remember is the Leopard. Not just because of time, yeah. but somehow that like it felt so. Like I feel like that phrase is thrown around a lot. It does. It and, does, get and it's generally a lot. not true. Yeah, but the but Leopard, the Leopard just felt, felt actually like Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Well, also, my description of Children of Paradise makes it sound like pretty much any of the Renoir films we just this watched. This is true, yes. But, but, uh, well, and any number of French films we've watched, frankly. Yeah. I'm starting to notice certain proclivities in French films. Of the French. They like they like movies about women who have multiple lovers. And, and theater slash art. Like... There, there's this sort yes. of weird tendency toward metaism where it's like we like films that are about films, <laughs> or the production of some sort of stage play. While we haven't uh, quite seen all the movies he made in the time period, we have seen a movie from Jean Gabin or starring Jean Gabin uh, from 1936, 1937, and now 1938. We've actually seen two from 1937. Well, I mean, presumably he was a pretty. Uh, prolific actor. Oh, he I mean, was not looked at very prolific in this but, time period. Well, as, yeah, I mean, it's like to say it's not saying much when you consider the fact that like if you were an actor at this time, you're either out of work or prolific. Gabin was essentially the face of uh the French poetic new poetic realism movement. He was the principal actor in like 90% of those movies. So, well, it's interesting because like poetic realism is is interesting to me because I've never it's never really a phrase I have heard outside yeah. of this very limited space. Yeah. I mean what I'm saying is like most of the time when you get into things like saying things like noir or something like that, it gets applied cross genre like cross media. Yeah. 
But like poetic it's realism, you have feels... more of a baseline to understand. Right, exactly. Like poetic realism, I feel like is literally just French movies from this time. It kind of is, uh, and I think we've, even the past when we've talked about poetic realism, I don't think we've really had a firm grasp on it. Uh, I've mm, I've seen this movie, and probably still, <laughs> still don't. I don't. Uh, I've seen this movie described as sort of a quintessential poetic realism, uh, in that it has a lot of uh, a lot of the hallmarks. Like, the, uh, okay. So the hallmarks, as far as people are concerned, uh, the guy self-defining what poetic realism is, uh, the poetry of it. Uh, being that sort of neo neo realist dealing with the downtrodden, uh, you know, we've talked in the past about sort of the lyrical style of the of the way things flow, right? And um, and I get and I get that. I mean, I understand. And we get that sort of metaphorical aspect of it, but then the realism where that comes in is the uh, again the the downtrodden people, but but by and large. Something you may have noticed from the poetic realist films that we've seen. Uh, they end with the main character dying. Um, right, okay. Well, I wasn't the, sure. Uh, I was still trying to decide if that was a hallmark or just, like, an accident. It seems like it's a hallmark. They are tragedies, by and large. Which is uh, because, interesting because... Because life is tragic, so that's more realistic. But that's... They're a little, they're a little bit fatalistic. <laughs> yeah, no joke, right? Like, for sure. But, like, but that's what I'm finding... I'm having trouble with their, with their, um, sort of terminology. Like, choosing the term poetic realism. Like, I get the sort of lyricism of it. Although I'm not entirely certain that it is more lyrical than other movies. Yeah. Like... I feel like, yeah, there's a certain ebb and flow that is natural to good movie making. Uh, any good storytelling, right? It has that sort of ebb and flow sort of pattern, right? Um, yeah. You know, and then sort of the just general, like, storytelling arc, right? So, like, I don't know that these are actually more, like, kind of lyrical. I think it may just be a trick of the mind. So the... Uh... The Criterion essay for this film, actually, is by a guy named Luc Sante, uh, who uh, has written a few a few films, a few books about movies. Uh, but he says, uh, he actually gives a, gives a definition of poetic realism that I think really, really works uh, and might guide us a little bit better into what it is. Okay. Um, he says, the term can perhaps best be understood by reference to the popular music of the time, specifically the style called chanson realist, or, or realistic song. Uh, as made famous by Edith Piaf, uh, Darnier, Ferrel, Lucien Diel in particular. The genre evokes a world-weary romanticism. With untrained and frequently raspy voices, minor key melodies, and darker narratives, uh, set more often than not in semi-criminal milieu. So what makes it realistic was its scorn for happy endings and bucolic setting, even if it amounted to another form of fantasy. So it's not realism in that it reflects reality. It well, is realism yeah. in the idea, like like a movie now 
feels more realistic if there's a blue filter on it. Like, let's we be think, honest we think that's here. Pretty. Like, the term realism as applied to film has never been accurately applied About to things realist. that are real. Yes. Uh, yes I mean, true. like, or real feeling. Like, they feel real only because we've trained ourselves to believe that thing is real, right? Um, yeah. Like, you know, in reality, right, like, everything we've ever seen, like, you know, things like French New Wave and stuff like that have lots of, like, quote-unquote, like, realism to them, right? But they're still just fan... They're still movies, so they're still fantastical to a certain extent, right? Um, yeah. So it's it's high artifice, yes. And, you know, this whole this whole film's on sound stages, you know. Whereas the neorealism would go for actual locations. Right, and, yeah. No, and I get that. And, like, that's... Yeah. I mean, but, like, modern films are generally... Oftentimes, like, especially blockbusters are shot a lot on location yeah the presence of actual objects does not in fact actually imbue something make it realism real. yeah like uh you know uh it, you know, i think i think for me it's funny to me that like because i guess the poeticness is not the death part it's just weird that like very few poem like poems do end in death but I don't think that's the general poetic association. <laughs> like, unless you're talking about, like... Okay, like, if you're talking about the... the uh, what is it? Um, the the poetry I had to study when I was in German class. Uh, what was it? Um, shoot. There's a, a type of German poetry that was quite, quite popular during, like, uh, the... Like, um, what was it? It's not Renaissance. Yeah, was it? I don't remember. But like almost everybody dies in those. Yeah, it was probably that. called German realism. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember. <laughs> I just, I I just remember like, oh, these are all super depressing. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> awesome. Life is depressing, Pat. That's what's real about it. But like, yeah, well, I guess. But like, no joke. Like, it doesn't. Again, that's a that's an artifice, right? Like that's a yeah, absolutely, and, and that's a weird like. I'm okay with us saying, well, that's just our that's the artifice we use, but the the use of the term realism does to a certain extent bother me. Yeah, well, like you said, whenever whenever the term realism pops up, it's not right, and 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 it's I it's very and rarely I, about I something realistic. It's that, something, but like. It's something that feels realistic to the audience at the time, that more better reflects their lives, but it is still artifice. And even neorealism using non-trained actors and live locations, it's more real, but it's still a film. It's still, it's not a documentary, even the right. ones that use documentary elements. We've seen some films that come very close to documentary that are neorealistic in style, but they still aren't documentary right. you know that's that's your your classic anthropological argument that once once the observer is there he's effective. well yeah i mean right? and that there's i mean they're not wrong <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there's also the idea that once an edit is made it's no longer real right right yeah no, well moment. i mean but even beyond that like you it is yeah i mean that's true but like yeah again we get into the thing where it's like it's actually impossible to transcribe to film a thing that is real yeah um and that's fine i i I don't know it's just 
when you start throwing like realism plus words that mean the opposite of real or not opposite of real yeah. but are inherently contradictory to the concept of real it gets we get we get in a pretty weird territory right i'm not wrong right yeah it's like well that's the other thing about the the we, french guys at this time i think are not necessarily dadists but influenced by the dada movement uh in the in the idea that everything is artifice and uh, you know, Dadaism at its heart is a a fatalistic absurdism. Nothing matters because of the wars. Uh, so, while Carnier may not identify as a Dadaist, and even even moving forward, the neo-realists, Goddard and, and Truffaut, they're they're still an escapism, uh, right? And, and but uh, yeah. at its yeah. forefront. You know, and 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 a sort of love of absurdity, like Goddard described a woman as a woman as a neo-realist musical, a, <laughs> right? Yeah, a phrase he himself said doesn't make any sense, but still used. So yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I it's not a hole I want to go too far down. It's just, I don't know. I just when you get into like terms of art, it starts getting weird because like they yeah. don't describe a. Th- they describe the thing that they describe only. They don't actually, like, provide information Context. in love of themselves, yeah. right? Like, you know, if I describe a physical object in the world, I'm generally probably going to use a series of adjectives and nouns that actually mean that thing as far as our language that is concerned. That might convey the information you Right, want. whereas terms of art seem to act counterintuitive to that tendency in human beings. Which Sometimes, is just a yes. weird thing about them. Well, I think, like... Yes, that's true. They don't always. For example, Impressionism does actually convey the information you would want to know about what is being made. Yes. Uh, you, you can, if you hear that, you think to yourself, I think I have a general... And then you see one, you go, yeah, that checks out. Well, that's, that's another thing. That's, uh, I think, the time that sort of artistic labels got closest to being actual descriptions of what they were doing was during the modernist period right cubism right i think that's yeah that's true that's true uh, which is an interesting uh and we move into thing. we move into postmodern and and we get a lot of words that don't make any sense and prior to modern we get a lot of high descriptors that don't really tell us anything right right, right. Mm. it's interesting so it's almost like the terms of art themselves are a meta product of the art style of the time yeah. Which is interesting and not something I've ever thought about. Not something I've ever thought about either. Uh, and not something we should probably uh, go too far down. But So, yeah, so getting movie. back to the film. <laughs> this movie. Another actually interesting thing about this film, uh, now that we've, we've spent so long talking about uh, genre descriptors, is that uh, according to Wikipedia, they start... Ch- the. They cite Charles O'Brien, who is an associate professor of film studies at Carleton University in Canada. Uh, he claims that this is the first film to be called film noir by French critics. Okay. Uh, and in that regard, it does open very noirishly. Our main character steps I, I out would, of the shadows. I would say, in the rain. I would say that stylistically, if you, if not knowing poetic realism yeah. as a term. If you, you would, would just, ask me what this was, I would call it a noir. 
just because of the sort of interplay of shadows in yeah and sort of the the tendency to go really heavy on like facial sh- like close-ups and things like that i could see that yeah um like every yeah, kiss I, scene in this film is a fucking noir i i the way people kiss in this film is noir kissing I watched this film yesterday morning, and then yesterday evening uh, discovered that uh, uh, <laughs> the third man is on Netflix. So watch that. Oh boy! So, yeah. No, so no. unfortunately, I have the pinnacle of noir. <laughs> well, right, but, as, but, as my comparison point for noir. Keep, right keep now. in mind so. that, like, we have to be very careful about that particular methodology, right? Because the things yeah. that are the pinnacle often tend to have to be quite different from things that are actually stereotypical. Yeah, I can definitely I can definitely identify this as as early proto noir. Right. Um like I mean, you know, we've got we've got that use of shadow but not quite as dramatic as as your average noir film. Like okay, I'm going to do a little fun little game. We're going to read the film noir Wikipedia entry. It's a cinematic oh, no. term used primarily to describe stylish Hollywood crime dramas. I don't think that's accurate. Particularly such that emphasize cynical attitudes and sexual motivations. I'm done now. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, but no, no, I really do feel that noir is a, an accurate descriptor. Um, and, like, again, something like Third Man, like, we get into this with lots of things, right? Like, I can't judge all musicals by the standard of Singing in the Rain. Because yeah. in many ways it is, well, first of all, it's a meta take on musicals. But it's also yes. quite literally, if not the best, one of the most clear examples, right? But like you, if you were to judge other musicals based on it, that would be a weird road to walk down, right? I mean, it's just it, it, that there's always that risk. Like the Third Man is, yeah, oof. yeah. <laughs> like that that is a that is a rough road to hoe, uh, and I would not try it. <laughs> You probably shouldn't. <laughs> I'm saying your uh, mind is tainted. My mind has been tainted by the best. I can't. Well, but also can't. not not just the best, but like also, it includes. When was the third man made? Um. Well, now I gotta look it up. But I think it was. Forty-eight. Right. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. Is like. The third man forty nine benefits from more so than a years. decade of yeah. the development of a genre, right? Yeah, you tend to get to these sort of like ideal versions of a thing right before it collapses in on itself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, where it builds to a sort of crescendo of like we finally have nailed it, and then after that, you just don't see that thing much anymore because everybody's like, "Well, that's played out because we can never beat that thing. We can never make a." Or it becomes so highly derivative from that point on that they actually create a new genre that's different because it's so hyper derivative of the original style. But you know what I mean. Well, that's like, I mean that's one reason why your Wikipedia description of film noir that you just read doesn't include anything visual, right? Oh, it does. It does. I stopped. I stopped. I, okay. I stopped because those two motivations, descriptors, sexual attitude or cynical attitudes and sexual motivations, describe quite clearly. The actions yeah. of the, the characters. No, it does get quite deep into visual style as well. Oh, I would hope so. Uh, it's uh, just but... I didn't. I didn't. I I wanted to point out that like well, but like to me like the visual style of noir is so uh, 
obvious. Well, to what I think of noir, it's defined by the visual style more than the Well, but style. it's both, right? Obviously, because, they go hand in hand. Right. Lot, noir, noir is a visual style, but also very much a style of storytelling, right? Because yeah. you can have noir literature, which inherently has no visual, except for in the True descriptors enough. that are used. But those descriptors are not the actual visual, but actually the words used to describe a visual, right? And And therefore are stylistic only like not i don't know um there's when you get into writing right like the difference between a thing that is used to describe a thing and then just saying like cynical attitudes those are essentially the same thing right because you'll use certain types of vocabulary to describe people and things and situations and those are all going to be linked together right Whereas visually, right, like when you get into movies, right, you, it gets more difficult, right? Because the visual styling is not using the same system of conveyance as the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. But my, my point is that, like, you have to have both in film, whereas in books you don't have to have both because they are the same thing. Which makes, I guess, totally. films in a certain extent maybe harder to do, like stylistically, right? It's why you can make a, it's why you can write a, you can accidentally not make a noir film when you meant to make a noir film, <laughs> but you'd be harder pressed to not make a noir book when you meant when you set out to write a noir book. Yeah. Yeah. This film definitely has the, uh, the emotional thrust of a noir. Uh I mean, and also visual styling, I would say. Uh, This is also, uh, interestingly enough, uh, this is co-written by poet Jacques Prévert. He wrote the scenario and the dialogue. And he is, uh, of Carnier's first, I think, ten films, he co-wrote nine of them, uh, including Children of Paradise, so... We've already seen some work from him. Okay, interesting. Uh, but uh, but basically, Carnier's poetic realism uh, phase, uh, he worked he worked almost exclusively with Jacques Jacques Prévert. Uh, as I said, we've got Jean Gabin, who is the the face of poetic realism. Um, if I remember correctly, the uh, the cinematographer worked with. Uh, it is it worked with our director mm-hmm. a lot too, but actually got his start. This is the same cinematographer as Metropolis, really playing in nineteen twenty-seven. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, which is very interesting. Uh, he's a guy named Eugene Shuftan. Uh, Shuftan, C H U with an umlaut, F F T A N. It's uh, German. Yeah, I, sure. I reading reading those letters to me unless I see them doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> I don't. I can't like hear. I don't know. I can't hear sounds when people read words. Yeah. There are a lot of really, uh, really great l- lines and exchanges in this film, uh, to the point where the uh, I learned a new phrase this week. The uh, the French uh, Wikipedia page for this page, <laughs> yeah, or for this movie. Uh, has a section dedicated to famous lines, uh, which apparently have a uh, 
have a French term. Uh, in France, a famous and repeated line that achieves a sort of cult status because it's entered the general lexicon is uh, called a uh, uh, replique uh, culte, or a, a cult replica. Uh, but the Wikipedia page uh, then does a few variations on that phrase, uh, including famous replica, and it describes uh, one of my favorite lines from uh, uh, Zabel, uh, it's better to have this head than no head at all. Uh, they describe it as a tasty replica. <laughs> I love it. I love it so uh, much. Tasty is, replica. Yeah. It makes me deeply, deeply happy. And, like, I need to learn that French and only that French. <laughs> uh, but that gets us into translation. And there's one we've talked in the past, and obviously. Uh, this is a true thing of of film translations and and literature translations being done to so that the audience has the same understanding as the original right yes audience. yeah uh, but there is a line in this movie where that actually took me out okay Which because one? they tried to localize it like that there is a point where uh, where Jean is uh, kind of interrogating Nelly about. Uh, what she might do for a living. Uh-huh. And he he uh suggests that she's hustling and she uh she either pretends or legitimately doesn't know what he's talking about. And he says, You speak English? Or did you learn English in school? Hustling and then defines it. Oh. But to, obviously that's an idiosomatic phrase that we understand. Right. To to understand the words I'm saying. But he's speaking French. Well right, <laughs> so, okay, yeah, but so it's like, obviously not, also you're... not but you that let's be honest here, Adam. That's because you're broken. <laughs> like you're not reading French. No, I'm not. Like it, I mean, like not to be mean, but like for real. That's because you're broken. It's because I'm broken. Yeah, like you're not. You're like you're. I I do understand where you're coming from, but but it makes me think that your brain is turned on a little bit too hard when you're watching <laughs> there, these I'm movies. Not... I'm not broken. I'm just transcended. Right, yeah. Pretty soon you're going to be floating while you're watching these movies. <laughs> just a ball of energy. Yeah. For sure. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I, mean, I get what you're saying. I, I get it, but like, yes, it is supposed to be a... <laughs> I, uh, yeah, and, um, yeah, an idiomatic <laughs> phrase are... that we're supposed to just be able to, like parse into meaning like yeah. why don't you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth yeah and and obviously it's a very uh, it's the most concise way to to convey that information to an english speaking audience but it was still well and also that... probably convey in many ways uh, presumably the rudeness with which the germ the french yeah. was said because yeah. i'm going to assume that like based on what we see of gavin's character in this film like He's pretty rude. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, still, even knowing about the sort of transliteration and localization of, of idiom and accent uh, and all all that that happens throughout the history of translation, uh, I still, part of me in the back of my mind, <laughs> just expected, can't deal to with be, that. expected to be a direct 
direct translation of what I'm hearing. Right. So, when so you're I, like, wait, wait, when wait. When I wait, see what? a claim that a Frenchman just yelled in French, don't you speak English, to a woman not understanding his French face. <laughs> right. I, I get I mean, me I, I get, It makes me laugh and it takes me out of the narrative for a second. Right. And that, that I understand. I think it's probably more the laughing than it is the, um, uh, than the actual, like, it, t- you know what I mean? Like, I think it's the fact that you process it as almost a joke that makes yeah. it break it for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that. And obviously it's not, it's not meant to be a joke or at least not meant to be a joke in the same way that I'm taking it. Right. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I think there's probably nothing wrong with processing it as a joke. Yeah. Obviously, if this were a dubbing script and and an English voice said you speak English, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But the fact well, that I mean, then you'd be watching a then you'd be watching a dub, which inherently makes you it takes <laughs> you inherently worse. Yes, like there's there's nothing more sa- like sacrilegious on the face of the planet than anything dubbed. <laughs> it's, the, it's the mark of a true like a true evil man. If they dub a film, as far as I'm concerned. All right. Um, you don't agree? I don't. We won't get into this. I generally agree. But I think there are good dubbings out there. Uh, I mean, they, they I have. Think, they, it I is think possible the Disney for dubbings them. of Miyazaki films, for instance. Right. They have work. been. They, they can be done well. Yeah. And, uh, but, that being said... I think in gen- that, that children's As films are a special rule, case, first of all. Children's films yeah. are 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 one hundred percent necessary because you may or may not be aware of this, but most children are not very good at reading. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, yes, I mean they're also like strictly speaking necessary. But uh, yeah. that being said, I also just find in general like it. <laughs> Any time, like, it's similar to what I felt when I was a teenager about full screen. Okay. In that, like, if I come across it on accident, where somebody made a choice for this to be the way it is, I cannot help but feel scorn. (laughs) Why would you do this? Yeah, why would you ruin somebody else's art by doing this? Yeah. I can read. Yes. Obviously. <laughs> That's just how I process it. I mean, it's just how that information comes across to me. It's like, wow, thank you for ruining this film. Well, fortunately, this movie wasn't ruined. It no, wasn't it was dumb. not. It was just, it was just, uh, it was just translated. humorously translated, transcribed humorously, and just that one line. Obviously, the other lines in the film uh, seem to be, uh, given that section of the French Wikipedia, they seem to be uh, my other favorite lines are. At least accurately translated. I can't remember what it was what the actual phrase is, and so my brain just said like tasty vittles. And I'm like, that can't be right. Tasty tasty reference. That is not correct. The one they use as the principal example is the exchange between Jean and Nelly when they kiss. He says, You have beautiful eyes, you know. She says, Kiss me. Then he kisses her. And then he just says, Nelly. And then she says, Kiss me again. Apparently that's become French idiom. I don't know. Like how that, is that? A, I don't even. I what? It's a quoted line. No, I know, you know? but like, like I'm fu- trying to. Sometimes people tell me that's like something's a famous line, and it's like four words, and I'm like, no, sorry, because like I don't know how I would do that. Well, you know, it's stuff that doesn't 
famous lines don't necessarily well, that, have to but fit that, that particular one seems hard because it's like it is a a very brief conversation in which both characters only deliver a yeah. few words. Yeah. I could see that being a quintessential scene that might get played out in other For sure, I can see that. And maybe that's what they mean. And that as a It's like, oh, we tend to replicate this scene because we all love it so much. That, I'm fine with. That checks out. And something that that true lovers like. Right, but like a movie nerd is going to like walk around saying that. Like, which parts does he say? Both? (laughs) Obviously not. That's weird. And it's it's not even especially, uh, it's not a deep line. Right. But it's also not out there enough where, you know, it's not like a Monty Python line. Right, but... You know, but Your Monty Python cult to... lines you don't quote in context of anything. No, but well, you tend but. to choose lines that are inherently self-contained. That don't rely yeah. on somebody else to provide support. Yes. Because that's, there's, a, there's a challenge in getting everybody in, on board. Okay, <laughs> if we're you suddenly now, say... Like, it, that's, like, that's like trying to do... Uh, Again, sort of like modern Hollywood dance numbers in real life. Like, okay, we're all going to yeah. start dancing, but none of us are going to play in this. Yes. Um. Uh, tasty replicas. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that I, that's got to lean more towards the, uh, the like, oh, we tend to do this in film. We tend to, like, say, like, that we well, love this that's... line, so we tend to replicate it. That I'm cool with. That, that is an indication that... Uh, that this is a machine translation. Oh, for sure. Not someone trying for to translate idiom. For sure. <laughs> uh, there is an interesting thing, uh, talking about lines, that uh, maybe this is a poetic realist thing, that uh, all these periphery characters have, like, really deeply philosophical things to say. Right. Uh, before, before they just kind of disappear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or actively commit suicide in the cases of some of them. I yeah that has I I'm sure I'm sure that that is a uh, poetic realism thing. Yeah, it's like taking like the Greek uh, like the 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 chorus uh-huh. and like making it tragic, and then all the witches in the story killed themselves. <laughs> well, that's kind of what happens with the with the painter Michelle. Well, no, that's no, exactly what I'm saying. It's like I'm here yeah. to provide a, a to to provide like sort of uh, not not so much, not really like um, what is it? Not reply, not to provide like physical context of information, right? Because there's no like yeah. big information dump or anything like that. But rather yeah. like sort of an emotional context, like to make it clear like what we're shooting for here, and then I'm yeah. gonna kill myself. And then, and then Michelle has the also benefit of providing a uh, material support uh, in his killing of himself. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, he is the he is the ultimate like sort of like sacrificial support character. Yeah, yeah. It's what a ridiculously weird thing to do. No, it to is just have this guy. It who, is. It who is. We like, don't. It, it is weird that it works in this film because yeah. that should not work. Panama calls him Michelle after he commits suicide, but he is credited just as the painter. He has no name as far as the script is concerned. Never introduces himself to Jean. Huh. Uh, Asks him his shoe size. Uh, says, says, if I see a swimmer, I immediately think he'll drown, so I paint a drowned man. 
is is like how we know he's a painter. Right. No, <laughs> I, I I do love. I do like truly and honestly love the painter's like nihilism. Yeah. It is. It is almost played to comedic effect. Like you, you as an audience, well, you almost thing. have it to is, like it process a, it and be like, nobody's that bad. It is a joke, but it's a very dark joke. Right. Exactly. The sort of. I mean, he just kind of walks off, and the next thing we see is a pile of his clothes, and Panama yelling after him which not is, to do it. Yeah, which is really weird. Like, like, what kind of film slash story is written with it necessary for one of the, like, for the plot to work? We need one of these random characters to kill themselves without motivation, other than the fact <laughs> of just being super duper depressed. Yep. It's very weird. <laughs> it's a very like it almost like if this film weren't kind of just generally very tight yeah I would assume that it was like oh shit we painted ourselves into a corner well that's the it's other very thing clearly not because... that because that's just not how the story the story is just not that that way it also triggers uh, a sort of uh, fate um, one of the reasons that in the third act, uh, there is a possibility of Jean being Jean being accused of the murder of Marcel. Is that they found his discarded clothes, which were only also in the bay because he left them with Panama. Panama didn't want the deserters' clothes sitting around and causing trouble for him, so he dumped them in the bay with a rock. So now it looks like someone's trying to hide those clothes because someone does, uh, and Jean's the. <laughs> The deserter, so obviously he's the guy who killed the <laughs> killed Marcel. Right. Um, it helps. I mean, they they could have done that a different way. I think there's there's other evidence that Jean might have been Marcel's killer. They had a very public fight right before he. Right. Died. I, it it uh, actually may, to a certain extent, be kind of overkill. It's superfluous. It really is. And and. and... When I was watching it, I didn't read it that way, but, like, it's very easy for me after the fact to be like, yeah, why did they... Hmm. Yeah. Why did they do that? So, you know, on the one hand, it it provides a, a through line uh, that pulls Jean back into that crime, but there are other... The whole story works together. You, you said, you know, this is tightly written, and you may have just meant time-wise, but... No, I there really both. aren't a lot of both. yeah. There aren't a lot of loose threads in this, and that it, it does that, that provides, sort of weaving storytelling. That, yeah, but it weaves a thread that didn't need to be tied right, up right. It, back it, into the story like, for no reason. Yes, that's absolutely true for sure. Yeah, it's like well, we threw yeah. this in here just in case because I don't know. No, <laughs> it's we're no weird gonna, people. If Panama hadn't thrown away the clothes, maybe the police could show up and find the clothes there, and then. It would be the same, the same motivations and arguments as as tying John into the crime already, uh, or they could just never talk about the clothes again, and no one's going to sit there and think, "Well, what happened to his hat?" Well, right, exactly. <sighs> like, I almost think that like one of the, I, I think if we probably dug a little bit deeper, we would discover that like one of the motifs of like a deeper motif of something like poetic realism or something is like the constant changing of, like, your appearance or something. You know what I mean? Like, Maybe. wearing masks or something to a certain extent. Actually, a really interesting thing 
on that note, the novel this is based on, uh, Jean Gabin's character is sort of a synthesis of two characters. And this I'm pulling again from the French Wikipedia. Uh, there was a sort of nihilistic cartoonist, bohemian cartoonist, who joins the army and ends up committing suicide, uh, which sounds more like a Catch-22 character than, right. <laughs> than someone from this movie. Uh, and then there is the deserter character who takes over an assumed identity. I don't know that it's... Well, it's more than likely not the cartoonist because I believe he committed suicide uh, while in the army, if I'm reading the paragraph correctly. Um, so he is known to be dead. Uh, but he gets this assumed identity and then instead of dying like he does at the end of the movie, uh, he sort of still doesn't find his happiness. So under the assumed identity, rejoins the army. Which uh, is like the greatest thing ever, basically. Like, yeah. I mean, it's a very honesty. different depression. It's it's still a depressing ending, but right, a very but different it's sort like, of depression. I, like, I, there's something much more deeply amusing about like somebody who deserts and then is like, well, I just don't really like know what to it's do. It's a about determined this. nihilism to go back. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, I love it as a as a as a as a storytelling thing. Whereas this one, everyone can just die. And then maybe his soul inhabits the dog? Yeah, that... I, I think they, they really pull up... Was that as implied as I felt like it was implied? I, I was kind of yeah. tired when I was when I was watching this. I mean, I think... You may have read, again, a little bit deeper yeah. than is strictly necessary for like to function in the film, but... But the dog definitely exhibits his sort of uh, get-back-on-the-road attitude. Yeah. And of course, the dog—the dog can't possibly know that he's committed suicide. So, I disagree. He hasn't committed suicide. He's got murdered. The dog could know that. The dog might be a psychic dog. It's true for sure. Well, if it's got the, the dog... spirits of of dead dudes in them, <laughs> yeah, that checks out. Probably. Um, the dog is played by a dog named Kiki. If that's if that's something, you it matters to a know. lot to me. I bet it did. That's always a weird thing, like, when dogs are credited in films. Like, that that element. Because it's like, well, I mean, how conceivably prolific was that dog? There's probably a know. pretty tight limit on that. Kiki does not have a Wikipedia page, so... Yeah, that's probably not a, a, a road we want to go down anyway, because, like... <laughs> like, I mean, like, literally, it's just not something we're going to... Like what happened to Kiki? Well, what happens to all dogs? They go to heaven. He died. Know. He died very shortly after this yeah. movie. I'm sure. Uh, well, considering it was made in 1938, uh, I don't want to suggest that all dogs in France died during the occupation. Yeah, but like but we can, we can. I'm betting the famous ones did. Oh, okay. It's specifically the famous ones. Yeah. Like if you were a famous dog, you were like on the chopping block. That's first up against the wall of the famous dogs. Yeah. First, they came for the famous dogs, and I was not a famous dog. <laughs> I feel so both bad. Like, it was a for terrible being joke. So so terribly like sacrilegious, uh, but also terrible. But 
the kind of terrible jo- a joke that makes me giggle a little bit. Yeah. Because I'm a bad person, uh, Adam. This is one of Dreyer's top ten films. So bad. That's yeah. interesting to me. But what what a <laughs> I guess no, yeah. I don't Carl consider Dreyer, this influential on Dreyer at all. No, but uh, like I don't see anything from this movie in Dreyer's work. Okay, but like correct me if I'm wrong, but Dreyer's work is depressing. <laughs> there is the depression. That's true. Like, By so and large, it, Dreyer it is... seems to me that when maybe not influential, but like fits his outlook on life a little bit maybe yeah. and so like well and then everybody killed themselves or died of some in some way or another oh and then there's a psychic dog uh, <laughs> no I, I don't know about the psychic dog part but you know i mean he, rather than viewing it as being influential per se more like oh this fits with what the things i like yeah because it is like yeah. his favorite fit one of his top 10 favorite films not like most influential films on my career or something like that. Sure. Like, and as a man who makes things that are pretty depressing. <laughs> like depressing movies. Guy dies at the end, I'm on board. Yeah, right. It's like, this is, this is what I go in for. Though... I don't know. They're generally like existentially depressing, but or dead or ends with a resurrection, not a death. Um, That's true. And uh, well, was well a, Joan but, of Arc obviously. But ends also, with like if you think about death, the sort but... of like oppression in like not 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 the actual oppression, but like the sort of oppressing feel of his films, the yes. heaviness of them. I could yeah. see this being like something he would look at and be like, "I want to do that, but like way more intense." <laughs> I want to do that, but like drive people to suicide. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, yeah. This is this is this. I, I want to make people very unhappy with their lives. Keep in mind, though, Dreyer <laughs> did a lot of his work prior to the creation of this film. That's true. He actually like, he only, only has four three films, films after afterward. four films. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, two people is a short. Uh, oh right. Okay. So yeah, three films. So, so, I mean, yeah. again, I think it fits more into the category of just I the films he liked. Short. Oh wait, I think two people might be the unfinished one. I don't know. Oh no, he disowned it. He disowned it and withdrew it from distribution. It was a full-length film. Uh, He just wasn't happy with it. Um, Okay. Yeah. Uh, Because it was made while the Nazis exiled him. Mm, (laughs) I would not... Yeah, I think he made a good choice there. I forgot that he made two people. Um, Because generally in my mind... uh, I mean, just look. uh, Dreyer, after Joan of Arc, made one film a decade... <laughs> right, which yeah, which we definitely people. talked about. Yeah, um, the last couple of times that we've talked, like the last time we talked about Dryer, that was definitely a thing that came up a lot. Yeah, was the fact that the man apparently just like I need about a decade per film to really lock in on what I want to do. Well, he definitely locked in. Okay, uh, I got, he took a decade and he made perfect movies. So. This is true. I mean, you're yeah, like I mean yeah. I guess there there is a there is a um, sort of reward associated with like no joke taking it a decade to yeah. do your job. 
a very one thing I can't get over this uh, in this movie is uh, Panama's motivations. You know, obviously he he gets rid of the clothes, and and I suggested that you know that's to to keep him from getting into trouble that he doesn't need. But why doesn't he tell Jean that uh, that Marcel killed him or not Marcel that uh, Michel the painter killed himself? There doesn't seem to be any reason he, except to elongate that scene. He doesn't. He I doesn't. Guess that's true. Uh, as they he he gives them the shoes. And he says, "Oh, oh, he must have. Uh, that must have been why he asked about him and the clothes and and then the passport." He's like, "Oh, he, where he's going, he doesn't need the passport. No, no, he'll he'll be fine. He's uh, he's fine." I think that's. I mean, I think we're getting into kind of part of the crux of that sort of lyric, like the lyricism. Yeah, this sort of like it is more pretty to avoid saying the thing, to like say it in a roundabout way than it is to just come out. Yeah, and say but it. he says it in such a roundabout way that I don't think Jean leaves with the idea that this man did kill himself. No, I think that's yeah. I mean, I don't know what Panama's motivation is. I think it might be more yeah. of a writer's motivation for sure. Yeah, um, uh, which those two things are sometimes a little bit hard to separate. I would yes, I I think I feel yeah. I just as as a character, he seems uh, like yeah. I I see what he's you're, not. I, I he's not as I'm developed not, I don't think enough. Wrong. Yeah, he's not as developed as as I'd like him to be. Like even some of the other periphery characters, we understand their motivations. Um, even even Michelle who. Uh, shows up, says some things about art, and then commits suicide. Yeah, says some depressing shit and then kills himself. Yeah. Uh, feels more real than than Panama's reactions to things. Yeah, no, Panama is like... The sort of, like, quintessential, unnecessarily enigmatic character. Yeah. I mean, obviously, everything about his life is a weird uh, artifice. So. Right, for sure. <laughs> And, so I guess uh, yeah. I guess he can act however he wants because he's just that weird guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I real I think to a certain extent that's the deal is like, oh, the weird guy. Yeah, I mean, in his in his seersucker suit and right. I mean, this is just like we need we need a, we need a man for flavor, and here's our man for flavor. It's just he doesn't have enough flavor. Is the thing <laughs> like they set him up as this this just weird guy and then he's not weird enough well yeah no yeah i can't argue with you about that yeah he if, is if like you know if he becomes john's mentor in some way or or we saw him again after right but let's be clear he gave the, the clothing away enough time for that kind of shit no certainly not but i don't know i just feel like you set up such an interesting character uh, and the only one you take time to flesh out, <laughs> but you still don't flesh him out well. Yeah, and you don't. Yeah, like he's out of all of the periphery characters who just pop up and say something uh, worthwhile <laughs> and disappear or do something. Uh, he's uh, he's in there the longest, but he's also the. But, like, sort of. I mean, I don't feel particularly like the secondary characters are all that well-developed in this film 
No, anyway. no, but the others are meant to be undeveloped. They're just popping up. To right, and so I think it's probably, I feel it's probably the opposite, where it's like he's an accidentally overdeveloped secondary yeah, character maybe that's rather it. than an underdeveloped character that was supposed to be very well-developed. Yeah. Does that make sense? Everybody's, like, everybody's two-dimensional and or he three-dimensional, is like and he's like 2.5. Yeah. yeah. 2.3, probably more accurate. <laughs> yeah. And, and that just uh, bothers us because we're used to movies going all in in one direction or another. Where we're like, oh, well, this is just, like, this is one of those movies where, like, the secondary characters are not important. And so we, we need not concern ourselves with them. And then they done fucked up and made Panama, like, too goofy. I really love the movie, though. I can't... I can't. No, no, no. I'm not... I, yeah, no. I have no problem. There's... There's yeah. plenty of evidence like that. Like you kind of have a choice in your movie making where you can either a be the kind of movie where it feels like every secondary character is a person who accidentally wandered onto set. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like being recorded while they live their lives. See, and that's what neorealism was really out to do. Right. Just record mm-hmm. those people anyway. Right. And, and with mixed success, if you ask me, but like, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, but you know, we've we have watched films where like it just builds. Each person is just so well acted and so well written that it's like, oh, I'm just seeing a snapshot of a life uh, yeah. that is taking place. And then there's the other kind of film, and I think it's kind of true in a lot of these sort of more pulpy films where it's like we just need a stereotypical archetypical character to fill into this gap to convey a piece of information or an idea. And we're not building those. We're building main characters only. And both of those are fine. I mean, the the other type works fine. We do run into the problem where, like, we, you know... Well, I'll get to that in a second. But, like, uh, it's fine. I mean, it's good. I mean, I enjoy it. It does suffer from the problem of having... Because there's such a limited character suite, um, and we're focused on our main characters... We do find that there's literally a single woman in the entire film. Yeah. Uh, and at least she's a main character. Uh, hey, there's a second lady. She's unnamed. She's on the date with Marcel. Oh, right. Okay. So, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, we, we get, we have a very limited cast of character and it is overwhelmingly male. Well, that is one thing about this film is we have a very limited cast period and not a lot of extras. Uh, no, but we do hit those... Presumably seg- those... this is a, a lively port town. Right, where there's like... We get a lot of documentary footage of ships being loaded and unloaded and pulled Right, but away. you never run into people. Yeah, well, no. We don't see people. Well, we, 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 it suffers from general film zombie plague. Yeah. Which, like, so many films do, where it's like, well, extras cost money, and we don't have any, so everything's empty. Yeah. Um... That does that. It does bug me, but it bugs me more that like to have such a like weird ratio of male to female in a yeah. in, in a a real environment. Like any one or more of those secondary characters could have very been easily been a woman. Yeah, they just said no. They're all men. There uh, can only be a single woman in this film. And I feel like France in 1938. Choice. France yeah. in 1938 should have women, mostly women. Yes, uh, in in general town scenes. 
The, uh, what, but what I find, what my opinion is always that, like, when you see a cast of characters like this, what it tells me is one or more of the people involved in the film do not understand how women work. Yeah. And so, like, got gun shy and said, well, we're just not going to put any in. Because, like, <laughs> I don't know, would a woman say this? That's that nonsense, right? Where they can't yeah. wrap their head around, like, because, like, Panama could have been a woman. Uh, you know, I can see them not wanting, especially this time of in history, not wanting um, Michelle to be a woman because yeah. you don't want to have the only person in the film who kills themselves to be a woman. Yeah, plus leaving leaving. Oh, yeah, close. There's also the clothes issue. Uh-huh. But you know, I mean, like honestly, when you get into like when you get into film, poor people been, clothes, it would have been a made it made for a, more <laughs> a very interesting. different movie. But, like, when yeah. you get into film poor people clothes, they're all basically the same stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, he could have very easily somehow ended up in a woman's clothes that don't in any way are not dissimilar to. But, yes, yeah. that makes sense. But, like, you do, we do have a few side characters that could have been swapped out without any yeah. major effect on the story. It's just it was a choice that somebody made to have just that, I don't know, weird balance. Well, it had to... You know, Marcel had to be a man, and his his cronies had to be men, so that we could have that toxic masculinity of them needing to fight each other, that ultimately leads to everyone's death. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. And if this were if this film were actually a commentary on that, it might have been brilliant. But oh yeah, well, and and, and, it and it's happens. commentary lack of commentary like that that keeps it away from brilliance. Yeah, but. Uh, but things happen. Alternatively, I can't, I can't expect also, a, a, a like, 1938 film to say say something like yeah, that. That's but. true. But also bear in mind that it could have been brilliant by even like a very simple step that it could have done, which is just having him actually go rejoin the army. <laughs> which is which is such a much more interesting choice made by the author of the book. Yeah. Than the movie. Yeah. I mean, true, true. if that's how this ended. That's a very odd. I, I don't very know how I would react to that. That's no, a, I, I mean, mean, it would be the end of the story would be crafted different. But yeah, obviously. But you could have had him instead of signing up for the boat. You could have had that yeah. same kind of conceptualization of him like running away via the army, yeah. than like wanting to say goodbye. Yeah. And then getting killed when you do that you know, like that would have been possible yeah there's things that could have worked out to yeah. make it more more in line with the ending of the book right and it, partially um, i just want that because i think that that sounds more fascinating than like yeah he's gunned down by the guy he kept slapping around early in the movie <laughs> like it's that's kind of a little bit boring actually Well, I think we can pull this to a close. This week we were talking about Port of Shadows, 1938 Marcel Carnier film. Uh, we will see a little bit from Carnier in the future. We've got two more of his films to watch. Uh, but uh, I'm fairly certain they're in the distant future. Next week, though, we'll be talking about the a year Fellini 2025. film. year 2025. Probably. Uh, e. Vitaloni, the Federico Fellini film... Uh, I love uh, 
Criterion's description of this film in Fellini's semi-autobiographical masterpiece. You mean, like, I, I assume there's a guy that is, at... That is a at, description of every Fellini film. And and literally has been the description of every... Like, there's a dude who... there's a There is a very smart guy who does the web media stuff. Maybe not anymore. For Criterion, who realized at some point that he could just fucking copy and paste that. He could just put that sentence. He's like, I can take care of the first sentence of every Fellini film in the whole collection. I got this covered, guys. Watch me go. And he just, like, control-V'd his way through fucking the entire Fellini catalog. Yes. Uh, anyway, we do look forward to that, because we do I we do love enjoy. To hate Fellini, I do enjoy learning more and more that upsets me about Fellini. Like, our slow dive into Fellini's psyche is probably one of my favorite things that we do. Because every time, I learn things that make me more uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, I know more about him that he never gets better. Like, his work is good. But that man literally... My opinion of him as as a person has never gotten higher as a result of doing more episodes about him. Indeed. Uh, we look forward to that. Thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. We'd appreciate it.